BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And of course, what do we say about our Sky Team? What do we say about them? <laughs> Don't know why, but I love those Chicago Sky Rally clips. Uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot at the Chicago Sky Rally clip. Uh, Mayor, here's what we say, uh, Mayor, Mayor Lightfoot. When you go to a Sky game, wear a mask. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Is that too much to ask, D? You know, everybody's got to wear a mask. At the hideout last night, everybody was wearing a mask. Wear a mask. Okay? So some That's of you all. know that the mayor of Phoenix and I had a little bet. Uh-huh. Yeah. And we won, of course. Uh, without a the, doubt. Uh-huh. But the Wilson Basketball um, Company that has its offices literally right across the street also got in on the action. And I just want to say they've come through in a big way. They have pledged to give 100 basketballs to a Chicago public school of the, of the sky's choosing. So thank you, Wilson. Tony up, Tony up, Tony up. <laughs> Wait, I still don't understand how that's such a big deal. A hundred basketballs? I'm sorry, D. There's more than a hundred schools in Chicago. One school gets a hundred basketballs. Not that I'm not grateful for, on behalf of that one school, but what about the other a thousand schools in yeah. Chicago? A hundred basketballs to one school of the Chicago skies. All the rest of you schools, uh-uh, no basketballs for you. All right, your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, December 8th, is brought to you by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, the Chicago Teachers Union, and Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for all things there is to know the city of Chicago. Go check it out. Subscribe, Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com. Check out the latest column from our very own Ben Jarofsky, ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. Go to that site and you can help out the program as well. It is Wednesday, December 8th, and pre-recorded from my apartment and his attic, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, legendary Chicago journalist Monroe Anderson and The Ben Jarofsky Show debut of Peter Goldman. And now your host, from his brand new laptop, <laughs> Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this uh, Hideout Wednesday, and here's why. First of all, the laptop is kind of new, but it's not brand new. It's the laptop that broke. You know, remember they sold me that bum laptop? <laughs> Best Buy gave me that. Remember that, D? They yeah. sold me the bum laptop. Oh, wait a minute. They, I went to laptop. Uh, went to lap- I went to Best Buy, ladies and gentlemen. I said, all I need is a computer that I could do my humble little podcast off. And they go, oh, well, this is the one for you. This is the perfect one. You know how the salesman get, oh, this one will handle all that stuff. You can put a microphone in, blah, blah, blah. 
So I start doing the, <laughs> I start doing uh, my humble little podcast off the computer. And guess what? It blows out the computer. So I go back to Best Buy and I go, well, you need a little surge protector. Oh, wait a minute. Hold on. You didn't tell me about this. Anyway, they sent it down to Kentucky. They got it fixed up. <laughs> so Kentucky, <laughs> for some reason. Kentucky. Best Buy. <laughs> when, they, when they really have a confounding problem, they send it to Kentucky. Uh, I got, apparently, there are no computer repairmen in the city of Chicago, but there are a lot of them. They're crawling all over the place in Kentucky. Listen, Kentucky's got the answer, all right? We're sending it to Kentucky. Okay. <laughs> send it to Kentucky. Anyway, so, uh, yes, we fired it up. We did a test run today. We're feeling really good about ourselves. Uh, very, very proactive on the Ben Jarofsky show uh, on this particular Wednesday morning. Beautiful, sunny day. I'm feeling very good. Uh, and uh, I call this Hideout Wednesday because last night at the Hideout, um, Maya Dukmasov and I had a great conversation, if I must say so uh, myself. And we're going to get a recording of it. We're going to drop it uh, probably in the next week or so, uh, talking about uh, redistricting, ward redistricting, state senate redistricting, state rep redistricting, congressional redistricting. I mean, we took the deep dive with Stephanie Scora. Uh, Candace Castillo was supposed to be there, our good friend Candace, but she was not feeling well. I hope you're feeling better, Candace. We really missed you last night. Uh, and Part of the reason it was so much fun for me is that uh, so many of our great listeners showed up uh, and it was just a delight to see them. You know, I'm very cautious. Dennis knows this. He makes fun of me a little bit. I'm very cautious about leaving the house on this day of age of COVID. But I went to the hideout. They don't mess around at the hideout. You have to show them that you were vaccinated to get into the into the hideout. You got to wear a mask when you're in the hideout. Everybody's bending over backwards to try not to spread COVID uh, and yeah, and still assemble and uh, hear great music or great comedy or listen to have political discussions. Patrick J. Whalen's show has just debuted at the hideout. We had Patrick on last week, and uh, that's going to be a regular thing. Uh, we are first Tuesdays, Maya and myself. Patrick is last Tuesdays. Is he yeah, going with that. that? Is he officially going with that? He's probably not. I don't know if he's officially going with it, but I'm officially going with it. So why not? It's either that or the Patrick J. Whalen show live from the hideout. Oh, okay. Well, last uh, Tuesdays is better. And uh, Mark Bazer's going to be back with his interview show. We should get Bazer back on to talk about that. Uh, he had to take a hiatus because of the uh, pandemic. So the hideout is uh, thriving and doing well. Touch wood. And it was so great to see. I'm going to give a shout out HM. Saw you there last night. Uh, Jay Marie, love you. Jay Marie was there and, um, Jay Marie's friend was with her as well. Uh, we're going to bring him on as a guest in the next couple of weeks. Talk about school issues, man, Chicago public school teacher, fascinating guy, interesting conversation, uh, after our show and Frank, want to give Frank a shout out. He gave me a present D, uh, which I've already put to use. It's, I'll, I'll show you the book. Um, Frank knows I'm a basketball fan. So he gave me John Thompson's autobiography, the legendary uh, Georgetown coach. Monroe Anderson has joined us, ladies and gentlemen. Monroe Anderson has joined us. Uh, he just finished his Tai Chi and is now drinking some refreshing juice uh, uh, to uh, fortify him. Anyway, uh, Frank, thank you very much. John Thompson's I Came as a Shadow. And uh, I started reading this book last night, Dean. It was 3 in the morning. I had to put it down. I'm like, this is ridiculous. I need some sleep. Uh, it's it's really well written, very compelling, and I have a portion of this book that I'm going to share with Monroe. I've not uh, told him about it. I'm going to read it to him, get his response to. It. I think it'd be very interesting uh, to hear what he says. Also, want to thank Jim Coogan, Ace Attorney Jim Coogan was there, 
and he gave me a super cool uh, reproduction of Brian Goodwin's walk-off home run. Uh, we're going to frame it, Jim, and put it in our living room. It's a beautiful uh, moment from this summer. Brian Goodwin hit that home run, a walk-off home run victor- victory for my beloved Chicago White Sox. Uh, and... Um, Jim was asking me if I was sarcastic yesterday uh, when I say it's it's time to apologize to Justice Smollett. Not quite sure if I was uh, sarcastic. We're going to get into that a little bit with Monroe, uh, the Justice Smollett case, my uh, ever-changing attitudes about it. Uh, Sandra Klein from The Reader. Thank you very much, Sandra. She was passing out Reader masks. They're super cool. Uh, The Reader masks. So uh, Reader's got plenty of those. Uh, And then, of course, the great K.D., Ken Davis. Kenny Davis was there. Uh, it was great seeing him. And he did an imitation D of me imitating him, which is consistent. Oh, <laughs> He's like the Greta Garbo or Ben Jarofsky uh, guests. He's apparently run out of things to talk about. He doesn't want to. <laughs> I don't have anything else to say. I'm begging him to come back on the show. <laughs> Anyways, great to see uh, young Ken Davis. Uh, and everybody asked me, D. Uh, when are you guys going to go back to live feeds on YouTube? Everybody asked me about it, uh, and everybody was so gracious about it. You know, I was explaining that we had some computer tech uh, breakdowns, and apparently we have to get a new computer to do it. And they were like, do a fundraising thing uh, on, what's that thing called, the Kickstarter, or whatever Kickstarter, the hell they call yeah, that thing. Yeah. And uh, so, I don't know. I don't know if we'll have to go there, but uh, I do believe we're going to make it our goal. Uh, Dennis and I decided we're going to make it our goal uh, to be back uh, on YouTube live, at least by the uh, the start of the new year. I think that would be a New Year's goal because we'll figure it out. We'll put our great brains together uh, and figure it out. So thanks to one and all. And, of course, the Tuttons, Katie and Tim. Great job last night at the hideout, as always. All right. Without further ado, the man, the myth, the legend, the pride and joy of Gary, Indiana, has joined us. Monroe Anderson, legendary columnist. And Monroe uh, before we take the deep dive, today is kind of like Monroe booked the guest day. The guest after us is a legend of his own. I want uh, a raise. We're going to have to double that big salary of yours, Monroe. All right, we'll double it. Are, are, are the Coder famous R&B singer? Nothing from nothing. He's <laughs> nothing. Oh, yeah. It's nothing. <laughs> All right, let's see how good. Let, who is the singer of that song? Billy Preston. Very. Did you look that up on your phone? No, 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 no. Oh, okay. If Billy Preston is in the Beatles movie. Yes, he Jackson, is. But I haven't seen it yet. Oh, my God. Let me just say this. We're not here to discuss the Beatles movie. That's another conversation another time. I'm actually, I watched the entire thing. But the Beatles in that movie do not take off uh, as a group. They're in a collective funk, and they do not leave that funk, uh, Monroe. You can see the group already splitting apart. This, was, this movie was filmed uh, in January of 69, the last year the Beatles were together as a group. You can see that they're already falling apart. And then Billy Preston, young Billy Preston, looking... Like he's 25 years old or something, whatever he was. Yeah, he's around that age. Yeah, Very young. He was a prodigy, played with uh, Little Richard and Ray Charles. Walks into the studio, sits at the keyboard, Monroe, plays one chord, and it's like the Beatles come to life. Go, Let's get down to business. We have a real musician uh, in the studio. It's a great scene. Perhaps my one of my favorite scenes in that 
uh, epic. Yeah, movie. well, you and, and you you know my good friend Sugar Blue played with the with the Rolling Stones and, and did the same sort of thing for them on this uh, Some Girls album. And we will not discuss how they ripped them off. We are right. not going to we talk about that. Right, we won't do that. Uh, he's, he's not as bitter as he once was, but. He's not sweet on the stones yet. I don't blame him. <laughs> Monroe told me the story. I'm like, I don't blame him. And then it was funny. I don't know if the Beatles ripped off Billy Preston. I mean, I think Billy Preston did all right by uh, the Beatles. Yeah. He te- teamed up with George, uh, George McCartney, George Harrison for many years. But uh, uh, yeah, your, your friend got ripped off by the Rolling Stones. There, I said it. Come on, Mick Jagger. Stop being so cheap. Um, all right, Monroe. <clears throat> couple things I want to talk to you about. Oh, let's go. Peter Goldman, as an old friend of yours, a co-author, you, you wrote a book together, correct, called Brothers? Yeah, well, it was a cover story for Newsweek that they turned into a book. They ex- expanded it and turned it into a book. It's, uh, the, it's called Brothers. And, and it's, a- it's um, basically the story of Sylvester Monroe who was uh, one of the correspondents in Newsweek, who who lived in Robert Taylor Holmes. And um, when he was in eighth grade, he was um, saved by ABC, A Better Chance. They sent him off to a boarding school. He went from there to Harvard, where he he was, um, uh, God, I'm blanking on his name now. Um, his roommate. Um, anyway, I'll, I'll, it'll come to me. But anyway, it's about the cover story and book is about um, seven other guys that hung, they all hung out together when when Vest was living in 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 Robert Taylor Holmes, and they're different. I mean, they trace their different lives, and they they had very different lives between them. One of the guys I remember had a going off to prison party, mm. but it, but anyway, um, yeah. Peter wrote it and wrote it brilliantly. He's a brilliant writer. Yeah, he is a a, a brilliant writer, uh, and he's a, a person who is very modest, as you'll hear, ladies and gentlemen. When he comes on the show. Uh, I was uh, I've been touting his work more than he will. Uh, and in particular, we're going to be talking about his book from that came out in the 1970s. Uh, it's called The Death and Life of Malcolm X. And I believe it's one of the first serious biographies about Malcolm X. There have been many uh, subsequent, many written by friends of Monroe, I might add. Uh, and um, so we'll be talking about Malcolm X and we'll probably go to uh, other issues of the day. Uh, but that'll be our starting off point. It's a, a, a mini obsession of mine. Uh, Malcolm X and what role, if any, the FBI had in his death. So I could talk about that forever. All right. So Monroe, I'm going to start with Justice Smollett. And uh, I'm still forming my ideas on this. Uh, I started talking about it yesterday. I was talking about it at the hideout last night, uh, off mic, just chatting with people after the show. I've been talking obsessively about it with my wife, driving her crazy, I'm sure. Uh, and Ramana Hussein, uh, who comes on the show every other Friday. Uh, now I'm going to uh, say this to you. After two days on the stand, he's been on the stand for two days. Like The jury right now, I assume, as we speak, is uh, meeting to discuss his fate. 
maybe they've already come out with a, um, a, a verdict. I don't know. I haven't seen a notice if they have. But after two days on the stand, he did not waver in any significant way from his central assertion that uh, he is the victim of a hoax. Everybody said he perpetrated the hoax. He said he is the victim of a false accusation by these two uh, Nigerian brothers who hooked up essentially with the prosecutors and the police to cook up a case against him. Uh, And Dan Webb, who is a legendary uh, trial lawyer from Chicago, sometimes he is a prosecutor, uh, sometimes he's a defense lawyer, makes most of his money uh, defending white-collar criminals, has made a fortune doing that, uh, has been... Pounding him on the stand, pounding him uh, and doing using all his prosecutorial cross-examination tricks to get Justice Smollett to break. And he didn't break. And so I was talking to Jim Coogan briefly about this last night, Monroe. Do I believe Justice Smollett or do I believe the police, uh, the Nigerian brothers and Dan Webb? And I don't know. The answer to that question, Monroe, I, I'm really like sitting through in this. I don't know, but I hope to hell Jesse Smollett is acquitted. And I'll tell you why. This is the biggest bogus case. This is the biggest bunch of nothing. You know, right. we've been talking about in terms of what Kim Fox did. And that was a serious issue, I thought. Like, did our uh, state's attorney bungle this? We talked about that forever back in 2019. It was a campaign issue in 2020. So here we are. We roll around three years after the fact, almost, Monroe. We finally get around to this trial of Jesse Smollett. And I'm like, this is what this is all about? An accusation that he contrived a, uh, a crime? Monroe, I'm going to p- make my position to you and then get your response and feel free to ve- vehemently disagree with me on this one. I think this cooked up by MAGA uh, who want to rewrite the history of race in this country and make it seem like white people are the victims and not black people. And I think they've been embedded by centrist Democrats who are bending over backwards, led by Rom, to show how tough they are on prosecutors who show any kind a sensitivity to the imbalances in our criminal justice system in which so many black people go to prison and white people don't. That is what I think. This is a political show trial. And Justice Smollett is a symbol uh, that MAGA is using to try to rile up white people to think that what racism is exaggerated. Jim Crow is exaggerated. Uh, the entire history of race relations in this country is exaggerated. And the people of Chicago have been witting fools uh, in this MAGA political show trial. That is my opinion. Feel free, Monroe Anderson, to just vigorously disagree with me. Go ahead. Okay, I vigorously disagree with you. <laughs> I, 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 I think you're, um, you're guilty of being a conspiracist. I don't think it's that cop. I don't think MAGA got, got involved it's 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 good old fashioned day in day out racism. Uh, they want to get this uppity Negro, gay guy, because he told a lie. He did. He's not a dumb man, but he did a very dumb thing. I think. I think. I think he faked it. Um, the report I I saw. 
that I think is legit is that he actually did get a, a, a letter or, or a, a correspondence, uh, an email, with somebody threatening him, some MAGA type threatening him. He took it to his producers, and they didn't. Pay, they didn't get. They didn't pay any attention to it. They said, "Yeah, well, you know, basically." I mean, they said these things happen all the time. He got so incensed that he decided, and this is my theory now. It's, there's nothing, but he decided, okay, well, he was going to get his boys, the two African Nigerians, and they were going to act it out to prove to, to his people how valuable it was and how it could have happened. The thing was stupid. But I don't think, I mean, the, where the, the police and the mayor, the uh, ex-mayor, former mayor, all these people come in is that they, he, he was a celebrity on Empire. So they gave him the celebrity treatment. And that they brought everybody in to look at it. They had all these police looking everywhere. And he fooled, he made a fool out of them. And so they want him to pay dearly <laughs> for that because, you know, it's just like with OJ, uh, who got the celebrity treatment to some extent and, and made a fool out of everybody. They, they have, he got away with murder, but they got him on selling, um, his stuff, taking his stuff from somebody and selling it. Uh, it. You know, it's a minor thing. So my position has been these years, these two or three years, is that there are already enough young black men in Cook County Jail. We don't need any more. It's overcrowded. And that he should have, he should have been fined, made to pay for the expenses, because he has a lot of money. So he, he should have been made to, to pay the police for the expenses they went through to investigate him, which would have been maybe $100,000 to $200,000 or something like that, and been done with it. But no, because he mentioned MAGA. He, he blamed it on MAGA. And we know there's some MAGA sympathizers in our, our ju- judicial system that's where it comes in. It's not yeah. that they plotted anything. No, I'm not saying they plotted anything. I said as soon as they had, as soon as the story hit, as soon as they had uh, evidence, or as, uh, as soon as they had mounted, built that case against him for fabricating the attack, yeah. it was red meat for MAGA. Right. And it was like there, they could use Justice Smollett to sort of uh, undercut the entire history of racism in this country. And I, and it's all the time. So like if someone accuses, uh, if, if, if a black person makes an accusation about, uh, abuse or, uh, a racist attack, it's, ah, oh, there's justice Millette again. It's another yeah. justice Millette. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that, and that much I'll go with. Yeah. And so that's what it's so valuable to them. Yeah. I, right. Trump will every now and then Trump will tweet. Oh, ju- like if someone says something about Trump's racist policy, oh, there that's that Justice Millett thing, and that's right. what's why it's so valuable to them because they can use Justice Millett to just sort of like smear everybody, uh, every black person who ever made an accusation about racism in this country. Yeah. Uh, well, Justice Millett made it up, so obviously this guy—that's what MAGA does. That's the game they're playing, and then uh, uh, Mayor Rahm. 
trying to show how tough he is as he left office was pounding his chest about we got to be tough on Justice Millett and we can't let him get away with this. Well, and he, 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 he had a McDonald problem that he was trying to distract from. Yeah, he did. He had a, he was also getting back, uh, Mayor Rahm, at uh, Kim Fox. Because Kim Fox was victorious uh, in part because of Rahm Emanuel burying the evidence uh, and sitting on top of the Laquan McDonald shooting. And so there was a huge reaction against Anita Alvarez and Kim Fox rode to victory. And so, you know, Rahm is like, oh, you think you're all that whole high and mighty, huh? Well, let me tell you, great job with uh, Justice Smollett. But Monroe, okay, uh, I brought your comparison to O.J. more last week or two weeks ago when you talk about Kyle Rittenhouse is the white O.J. That yeah. was really good. I've been using it ever since. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I remember to give you credit. Sometimes not. Yeah. Uh, uh, but uh, this one is a stretch because comparing O.J. to Jesse because O.J. killed two people. That's yeah, a I know. serious freaking crime. He killed no, I, two people, man. Yeah, I know. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not minimalizing murder or anything like that. The point I'm making is that um, what what the white supremacists are doing in this country at this point is they they look at black celebrities, whether it's Michael Jordan or Oprah or you name them, and they deem them the exception. But then all the other black people are just niggers. And you can treat them as you wish and do to them what you want. And uh, whereas, you know, there are a few exceptions, the crossovers that are fine. And so that was a comparison I was making, is that he, uh, he was given the celebrity treatment because he was a celebrity. And then once they found out that he had this, Done had done wrong and made them look like fools for going for it. Then they turned on him. You know, with OJ and the murder trial, um, initially, no one wanted to believe it. That's why he could have the uh, the, the the slow um, escape. The, when he was in the car, the car was going 15 miles an hour. He's trying to get away. And, and um, at that time, most people were sort of uh, um, rooting for him, cheering for him, thinking, thinking that it, they were. Oh, when he was in the Bronco? Man. Hmm? Yeah. When he right. was in the Bronco. Yeah, when he was in the Bronco, the Bronco. And at that uh, time, because, yeah, you, you know, everybody was OJ. But then when they heard, found out what actually happened, then white people turned against him. They were burning his uh, trophies. Yeah. Uh, and Destroying oh this. I still remember uh, that that chase. They interrupted uh, the, the broadcast of the NBA championship game between the Houston Rockets uh, and the New York Knicks. I was so irritated. I, who wants to watch this freaking car going on an expressway? <laughs> Uh, apparently, all of the world wanted to watch. What was the guy's name? It was trying to Al Dowling. Was that his name? I, I can't, can't remember. Uh, yeah, I think yeah. so. Yeah, it was Al. It was something. Yeah, Al's friend. I mean, OJ's friend. Well, anyway, uh, uh, I'm still working this out of my head about okay, Justice. No, but anyway, back to just, just yeah. Justice. This is much ado about nothing. You know, they and and hopefully what they will end up doing is just um, make it a, some sort of misdemeanor, finding him some more money, and make him do community service. 
But the, he not he should not spend one day in jail. I got. I'll go one step further. I hope yeah. the jury acquits him. I hope he's acquitted. Yeah. It's his word against uh, the Nigerian brothers' word. Basically, yeah. it's one man's word against another man. Right. He so, said. He said. Yeah. It's a. It's like. So what are you? And it's a. Oh, it's the biggest bogus case in the world that we're spending all this time on it and uh, money and money. So I think I would love if the jury just said, you know what, you guys wasted our time with this thing. We are not going to give you, uh, Dan Webb, the satisfaction of feeling like you accomplished something <laughs> with this waste of time triviality, and we're going to quit him. And then Jussie can, you know, pat himself on the back and his friends could say he's uh, innocent, whether he is or he isn't. Yeah. Uh, and uh, his, oh my career, God. his career is ruined anyway. So. Well, you know, in America, there's always second chances. You know that, Monroe. You've seen a lot of guys you thought were through. Uh, uh, now, it's true, O.J. Simpson, uh, I don't see him acting in any movies or commercials lately. That's a good well, point. He couldn't act to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so right about that. Oh my God, OJ, you're a bad actor. Uh, so anyway, we'll, we'll see. Uh, as I said, the jury is still out. All right, I want to um, read something to you. I didn't prep for you, prep you for this in any way. Uh, so Frank, a good, a good friend of the show, I uh, was at the hideout last night. And he gave me uh, this John Thompson book, and John Thompson was the longtime basketball coach at Georgetown. University uh, and Monroe. I know you're not a huge uh, sports yeah, but fan. I know but, who John Thompson okay. is. So he's a cl- what, and he's, he's a cl- he was the coach of the New York Knicks guy that was Patrick Ewing. Very yeah, good for right, knowing that. Right. Uh, and um, John Thompson's what uh, used to be known as a, a race man. And uh, Monroe has been called a race man from time to time by uh, I think Don Rose called you a race man. Didn't yeah, he, he did. Uh, and. Uh, a race man is a black man who's not afraid to speak out on behalf of his race. Basically, that's what a race man is, right, Monroe? Would you yeah. agree with that? Uh, basic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, they, and, they, and white people don't like him for that reason. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm not saying Jesse Smollett is a race man, by the way. Yeah. He Jesse is sort of like uh, OJ in that case. He discovered race when he was got in trouble. Oops, I'm right. in trouble. Well, no, Jesse wasn't that bad. He actually did was. He and his sister have been involved in civil rights things as, as, as young black people. Fair and enough. He's not as much uh, as bad as OJ. Yeah, right. He's not as bad. <laughs> I, as as I, I once told a black woman who was defending OJ, I told her, if there was a white blonde behind you, OJ would knock you down and get to her. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I... Uh... <laughs> That's Monroe Anderson speaking, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the views and opinions of OJ, of uh, Monroe Anderson are not necessarily those of my. All right. So I was reading this book last night. I was up late last night. It's really well written. Uh, I'm going to try to bring the uh, the co Of course, he has a co-writer. Uh, let's give a shout out to Jesse Washington. I do not know who Jesse Washington is, but that's the co-writer. Monroe, you know as well as I did that Jesse Washington did the heavy lifting on the writing of this book. Oh, so yeah. as a, writers looking out for each other, good job, Jesse Washington, whoever you are. Uh, it's really well written. Is it, a, is it, a, is it as, an as told to or... Um... It's with. Is he getting any credit for it? Yeah, he is giving credit. That's how I know about him. It says yeah. a, an autobiography... And then John Thompson is in bold uh, letters. And then below that, in smaller letters, 
much smaller letters. It yeah. says with Jesse Washington. Yeah. Okay. And so uh, they identify Jesse Washington as a writer for ESPN's The Undefeated, uh, and um, John Thompson is, of course, the basket, the great basketball coach. I think John Thompson died not too long ago. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, so John Thompson is telling the story about how when he broke into the NBA and he's played for a little while for the Boston Celtics, there was a quota on every team. Uh, and with the Celtics, you could not have more out of out a 12-man roster. At best, you could have six black people on it. And that's just the, 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 the people who owned, ran the NBA were just too worried that if there's too many black people in the NBA, white people will stop going. This is the yeah. 60s, okay? Right. Uh, and so as his point out, his point is that it was really unfair uh, to black people who are like competing. You got 12 spots on a roster, but in fact, black people are competing for like five spots because seven of them are set aside for the white guys, even if they're not good talent enough to be on the team, just need their white faces. That's right. the, okay. And that's John Thompson, not the first person to say this Monroe. This has been uh, at a, an accusation level against the NBA. And he wrote this. I, I marked this down. He told a story about uh, a teammate of his, a black man named Laverne Tarts, who got uh, cut from the team, even though he was far superior to the white players who made the team uh, because of the uh, unofficial quota. And he wrote this. Thousands of Laverne Tarts get derailed this way before even making it to high school or college teams, let alone the NBA. I've watched plenty of players on the playgrounds, people you never heard of, and said to myself, damn, he's a pro. That's one of the reasons I believe segregation was in some ways better than integration. During segregation, you knew the reason you didn't get any opportunity. After integration, they had to invent reasons to exclude you to exclude us, which makes us question ourselves. When it came to basketball, guys started thinking, quote, what's wrong with me that I can't make it? They questioned their own ability due to the lies that integration encouraged some white people to tell. I've seen great players literally go crazy because they couldn't reconcile the fact that they never made it to the pros. That's one of the negative effects of integration quote, I'll go back to the sentence. They question their own ability due to the lies that integration encouraged some white people to tell. What's your thoughts on that paragraph uh, composed by John Thompson and Jesse Washington? Uh, it's very true. It rings true. And I would take it even a step further, um, being a casual sports observer, uh, that any and every chance they get to take a good white player he will be promoted into superstardom just because he's a white mm. and and they're and, 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 and considered more marketable. Uh, you see that in basketball. Um, you you, um, you you see it in football. And those are the two sports where black players dominate, as 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 we know. Um, and you know that's 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 America. Still today, twenty twenty one. That line about the lies that white people say uh, to justify the decisions they make does that resonate with you as well? Oh yeah, for sure. In, in fact, um, the, the 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 best thing that happened to me as a journalist was going to work at Ebony magazine because working there 
I got to differentiate between um, the racism that's that exists in the media and my my strengths and shortcomings. Because anything that happened to me at Ebony did not happen to me because I was black. It happened to me for other reasons, but not because I was black. In when when I was at um, white media, then I never knew. I, I, was, I was always second guessing myself. Is this because I'm not, I'm doing something wrong? I'm no good, or is this because I'm black? And being at Ebony, there was that freed me um, for a couple of years from that. And when you were at Ebony, were there white people that worked at Ebony? Uh, two. One or two. 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 One for sure. Maybe two. <laughs> Wait a minute. What? <laughs> Wait, what? Wait. How come you can't? Why? Maybe. I mean, what? Was the one guy just sort of sleeping? But no, also... no, no, because my memory. You know, okay, this I got you. It's a memory issue. Two to 74. Yeah. And so my memory. But there was this one woman I know who was white. She ended up um, um, marrying um, Marv Dyson. Oh. Yeah, and so and then there, there may have been another white person. I just can't remember. Well, so uh, by the way, Peter Good uh, Goldman has joined us. Peter Goldman has joined us. Hey, Peter. Uh, it is. It, it's hey, so buddy. nice to know. Uh, before we bring Peter on, I have to ask this uh, final question uh, to Monroe. Uh, uh, to close up the conversation we're having, and we're uh, uh, Peter. Just to let you know, we're. Uh, we're having a conversation about the mind games uh, that uh, black people confront uh, in an integrated work environment where uh, they don't get a promotion, let's say, or they don't get an advancement. And then the white uh, person in charge comes up with an excuse to justify uh, a decision that's uh, racial in its uh, origins. And the reason why I'm raising this uh, is that I just read this passage from a book by John Thompson, the legendary basketball coach, where he talks about the quota in the NBA in the 60s and how they would concoct all sorts of reasons to justify cutting a black person when it's really just a matter of they didn't want to have too many black people on the bench. All right. So Monroe. So you said when you were at Ebony, there were at least uh, there was at least one, probably two uh, white people working uh, there in the, to the best of your memory. Yes. Uh, were they subjected to sort of these Machiavellian mind games uh, that black people, uh, white people put black people through? No. Or were they just treated just like any ordinary uh, field hand uh, at Ebony? Right. Well, like I said, the, the one white woman that I uh, remember for sure ended up marrying um, a, 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 one of the black men there. And so she she got special treatment. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Uh I, I just could tell you, like, this Machiavellian mind game is a white thing. I'm just going to say that uh, based on my ex experience in many different environments. Uh, and to a lesser degree, uh, Monroe, before we bring Peter on, they play it with white people as well. Um, but uh, not nearly as much as they play with black people. All right, Peter Goldman, uh, Monroe and I have been uh, singing your praises uh, in preparation for this uh, great uh, conversation. Uh, thank you very much uh, for joining us. And uh, Monroe was talking about uh, the great work you did with him at Newsweek way back in the day. 
uh, when you guys were too young, uh, strapping journalists. Uh, I, was, I was never young. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that is not true. At one point, you were young, uh, as was I and Monroe. And uh, the reason I reached out to you, Lord knows where the conversation is going to go, Peter, uh, but is that Monroe and I were having another conversation about Malcolm X. And um, I finally got around to watching uh, the uh, documentary uh, who killed Malcolm X. And uh, if you get to know me, Peter, I get these obsessions. Uh, and sometimes they come back in time. I was obsessed about this about 12 years ago, and the, the Marable book came out as well. Um, and uh, Monroe said, well, my good friend Peter Goldman wrote uh, the book on Malcolm X from the 1970s, The uh, Death and Life of Malcolm X. And your book is credited uh, in the documentary by Netflix. You're credited uh, uh, in that uh, documentary as well. And then when I was reading about the documentary, uh, there was some uh, writer who said there's nothing new in this documentary that Goldman didn't have in his book back in the day. Uh, and so I said, we got to get, uh, Peter Goldman on the show, uh, to talk about the, the death and life of Malcolm X. So Peter, if you would be so kind, sort of take us back in time to, uh, the early 1970s, Malcolm X was killed in 1965 and just talk about what intrigued you to take the deep dive into studying, uh, the life and death of Malcolm X. Uh, actually that big and when I uh, first met him in uh, 1962, when I was a reporter in St. Louis at the now defunct Globe Democrat, um, and uh, uh, interviewed him several more times after I got to Newsweek, and. Um, I was drawn to him. I, when I first met him, I was I was sort of a conventional white liberal. Uh, uh, I'd been a, a modestly an activist in CORE in St. Louis when it was a Jim Crow town. Uh, but um, my uh, the first time I sat down with Malcolm X, I, I sat down as a, uh, as, a, as I said, a classic white liberal. I believed in integration. I believed in the, in the uh, uh, approach of Dr. King, uh, nonviolent direct action. And... Uh, Malcolm had such force. We had lunch at a at a Muslim-owned uh, uh, restaurant in St. Louis, uh, and uh, he had such force that he began to make me go back to grade school on the subject, uh, and that continued over several more meetings after I had joined. Uh, uh, Newsweek. Uh, I liked him a lot. Uh, I don't know if he liked me or not, but he trusted me. He, there, I, I wasn't the only white journalist he trusted. There were there were a number of us, uh, and the trust was uh, based on uh, his experience that we weren't going to portray him as a, a teacher of 
hate and violence, uh, that he was, uh, his message was much more complicated than that. Um, so after his death, I got approached to, um, actually I got approached by two different publishers to write a, write a biography. And, uh, I did that, uh, the first edition, 1973, uh, my discussion of the assassination was uh, pretty much limited to what was available from the trial. I was not allowed to talk to the three defendants. Uh, they, had, they had a new lawyer in the famous Edward Bennett Williams firm in, uh, in D.C., uh, he didn't want them talking to any uh, journalists. Um, but that cracked in the middle 70s, so I did a second edition of the book. Um, uh, by then, I had, uh, they, had new, uh, they had new legal representation. I was allowed to visit all three of the accused assassins in jail. And uh, uh, and that, with other reporting, persuaded me that uh, two of them were innocent. So uh, that became a crusade for me that uh, lasted forty years. Uh, in the, uh, I did a third edition in twenty thirteen, I think it was, in which uh, I offered my final conclusion that uh, Malcolm was murdered by a, what was called a special squad from the Newark Mosque of the uh, Nation of Islam, uh, and that it was ordered by Elijah Muhammad, who was the leader of the Nation of Islam. Um, and going back to the Netflix thing, I think they got a lot of stuff wrong. I was... Uh, I was not entirely happy that they listed me as a consultant. <laughs> All right. Uh, um, before we get into what they got wrong, uh, I, there's just an obvious follow-up. There was a lot of follow-ups to what you said. Uh, but the obvious follow-up is you became convinced uh, that he was assassinated uh, by a squad from the Newark Mosque. Uh, ordered by Elijah Muhammad. So the question is this, was the FBI in, uh, involved, were they, or, or at the least, or very least, were they aware uh, that the uh, special squad was dispatched? Were the people in that squad uh, who were dispatched to kill Malcolm X, were they themselves FBI informants? Uh, as was the case here in Chicago with Fred Hampton was killed in 1969. Uh, there was an FBI informant who drugged him. Uh, um, police. Uh, so go ahead. The FBI's role. Uh, let's talk about the FBI's role and the uh, New York Police Department role and the CIA's role. None of them needed to have an active role in the assassination. Uh, uh, there had been... Um, five or six attempts on Malcolm's life between June and and uh, his death in June of uh, uh, 
64 and his death in 65, uh, everybody, including the FBI, the New York Police Department and its infamous uh, anti-subversive bureau uh, known as BOSS, the Bureau of Special Services, uh, they, all, they all knew what was coming. They didn't need to do anything. They didn't need to involve themselves. They just sat back and let it let it happen. Is my view, uh, and I think there is fairly persuasive. Uh, it's a fairly persuasive argument that uh, uh, I have no doubt they knew the assassination was coming because there have been all these attempts. Uh, and they may have known the. They probably knew the exact date when it happened. Uh, um, they uh, they just didn't need to do anything. Uh, okay, uh, you know, for for the New York police, it was uh, there was the possibility of embarrassment that they didn't do anything about it, and I think they worried about it, and I think that's one of the reasons we got these two quick wrong arrests um three uh, three people were uh, one person was arrested at the scene uh two others were uh, uh, one one of the others was arrested five days later the 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 third and last um 10 days later the guy at the scene was guilty and as he confessed later, and as I discussed with him in uh, his prison cell, um, the other two were logical suspects because they were members of the uh, the Nation of Islam's uh, so-called paramilitary force, the, the uh, Fruit of Islam, and they were both known as guys who had been in the past in some rough stuff. Uh, the police needed, a, the, the police for reasons of politics and keeping the peace in New York, um, uh, uh, picked these two guys as logical suspects and uh, uh, found some witnesses who were willing to identify them. Uh, and they were innocent. Um, so, all right. Now let's just uh, pause for a moment uh, to um, sort of shine a spotlight on what Peter just said. This is the part that gets me every time I come back to this story, Peter uh, Monroe, and that is this: uh, Malcolm X was killed in in a very public setting. There were hundreds of people in the Audubon Ballroom in February of 1965 when five men stood up and shot Malcolm X dead. Very public setting. Um, In the confusion and the chaos, uh, uh, two of the gunmen or uh, three of the gunmen escaped uh, and were never uh, arrested. Uh, One gunman was uh, captured, apprehended on the scene. Uh, and then later on, subsequently, two guys weren't even in the Audubon ballroom at the time, were picked up and charged uh, 
with murder and were convicted by a jury of murder, which meant that the guilty party, the people who actually killed Malcolm X, two of them or three of them escaped and were never punished uh, for killing Malcolm X. Uh, If it's true, as Peter says, and I completely think you're absolutely correct, Peter, that the FBI, who was listening to every conversation Elijah Muhammad had and every conversation Malcolm X had and every conversation Martin Luther King had, let's just throw him in the mix, too, at the time, they knew what was going down. And the CIA, I hadn't thought about the CIA, but uh, I'll I'll buy your your, your, uh, observation that they were listening to. They knew what was happening, and they knew that two innocent men were taking the fall, and they let two innocent men go to jail for 20 years. They knew who killed them. I don't know. Go ahead. I'm not sure they knew the exact personnel. Um, well, they, they had um, to know. You go ahead. I'm not sure they knew the IDs. They... They knew that a hit was going to happen. Uh, uh, it's possible they they had uh, the names, addresses, uh, uh, the rest of the ID, but uh, I don't know. I don't know that, and I don't know that uh, any other student of the assassination knows that. Uh, so do you think that they knew the identity? Do you think the FBI uh, knew that the two people that uh, spent 20 years in prison for killing Malcolm X, even though they weren't even in the Audubon ballroom when uh, the killing happened, do you think the FBI knew that they were innocent? I don't know. Uh, and I don't think they care, <laughs> is my guess. Yeah. Well, do, do you think uh, they had a plant in the mosque number three? In, in Newark, do you, you, you think the FBI had a plant there? At, at the very least, they would have had an informant there. Yeah. But but the informants weren't always privy to um, this kind of action. Um, um, the informants may have been rack and file Muslims. Um, uh, uh, the... Um, the planning was carried out um, at a at a higher level, and the assassins were brought in. Most of the planning of the actual assassination happened in cars driving around Newark, um, according to uh, Mujahid Ali, who was the one guilty man found at the scene, scene uh, then known as Talmadge Hare. Um, I, I, you know, there's, I, I get the, the will to, um, see Malcolm's death as having happened for causes larger than a sectarian squabble with a, with an off-brand version of Islam within an off-brand version of Islam. I just think that's what happened, and I hate that Malcolm died for essentially cheesy reasons. Uh, uh, Malcolm had begun talking about 
uh, Elijah Muhammad's uh, habit of betting his secretarial pool, very young, very young women, um, and bearing children, and then denying his father, his uh, his uh, paternity, and and exiling them from the nation of Islam. It's that Malcolm should have died because he raised that as he raised that with some people he trusted within the nation of Islam. Uh, he trusts people he trusted enough to say we've got a we've got a PR problem coming up here. This this stuff gets out. We're cooked. Um, the messenger of Allah is no longer the messenger. Of Allah for a lot of people. Um, so um, that was why Malcolm died. I would like a, I would like a heroic death for Malcolm if he was gonna if he was gonna die. I would actually I wish he were still alive, <laughs> although he'd be even older than I am. <laughs> Um, I, I wish he had had a heroic death. Um, he had a, he had a trash death. So, what didn't you like about the Netflix? What was what did they get wrong? Um, I was listed as a consultant in that um, series. Um, to my uh, regret. Uh, I had a couple of lunches with the, their production team when they were first starting out, and at that point, they wanted to do uh, uh, they they wanted to show that it was a government conspiracy to murder Malcolm X. So I, at that point, I dropped out. Uh, in the final version, uh, they had they had uh, moved far away from their original premise, and uh, they they did a sort of what I regarded as sort of a silly detective story about uh, one guy, one obsessive guy trying to confront one of the actual assassins and uh, uh, to me that was a nowhere I mean, that, that, I mean maybe it was good TV uh, I, I, I I thought I had wasted five hours <laughs> uh, well I'm going to res uh, respectfully disagree with you on that one I found that very compelling uh, Peter I have to say uh, and I'll tell you why I thought it was compelling to get your reaction. Uh, and as I always tell Monroe, feel free to vigorously disagree with me, Peter, even though it's my show, I can handle a guest disagreeing with me. Um, I found it very compelling because the point that they were making at that part, and I'm giving away the movie and it is five hours. So it's a while. So to get to that point, you got to, you've invested already four hours of your life, uh, as Peter alluded to. But at that point, uh, they had uh, developed this theme that the one that really keeps me up at night, if I think about this, is that uh, two men have been wrongfully convicted uh, of, of, um, 
of a crime that if there had been just any basic minimal amount of pol- honest police work by folks in charge, be it the FBI or the New York Police Department, they would not have been charged in the first place because they couldn't even establish that they were in the room uh, and that the actual killer was allowed to escape uh, and then have a life set up in uh, Newark where he was more or less a respected man uh, in the Newark community. In fact, when he died, uh, the lieutenant governor came to his funeral. Uh, And I I found that very upsetting, that both that um, the the actual killer was not punished and that two innocent men spent 20 years uh, in prison uh, and that uh, this great leader in our country, uh, was killed, and our country's leaders made no honest effort to establish who did it and why, and uh, that there's the possibility that they know a lot more about it than they will ever let on, at least in our lifetime, uh, Peter. And so the way they dramatized the the discovery, which I, I guess I could see why some people would call it hokey, I found compelling because I shared the feeling of the narrator, uh, the the protagonist in the documentary, that this is just one of those horrific American crimes uh, that is being buried. So that's my, that's, that's why I applaud them for what they did. Do you see any value in what I just said, or do you disagree with me completely, Peter? It's, it's, it's not a question of seeing value or disagreeing. I'm, I'm just saying that, um, Uh, I interviewed, uh, I think, six of the homicide detectives and the um, prosecutor who prosecuted the case and the lawyers for the three defendants. Um, Monroe will understand this. I'm pretty. I'm pretty sure you've covered chaotic events in your life, yeah, <laughs> in your right. journalistic past. Right. right. Chaos is chaos. Um, uh, eyewitness testimony becomes almost totally unreliable. Um, uh, there's talk that Betty Shabazz uh, witnessed the. Um, uh, the actual murder. In fact, she didn't. Um, she was she was bowed down in her seat, trying to protect uh, the kids, her, her children who had come with her. Um, all small, very small kids at the time, and she was pregnant with twins. Um, uh, the homicide cops I talked to um, um, I think four four white cops and two black cops um, uh, all believed in their in their case, but I but I know of at least one instance in which they uh, used pressure to get um, to get an eyewitness ID of the uh, of the three men, and that was that was a guy who um, had. 
either, either the day after or two days after Malcolm died, uh, some of his followers set fire to the uh, uh, New York City mosque, um, mosque number seven uh, in Harlem. Uh, um, and uh, and so one of the eyewitnesses, the, the detectives believed very strongly, uh, was involved with that, and they used that as leverage to get to get an ID. Identifications in chaos. Must forget about it. Uh, they don't matter. Uh, uh, if if three people are in a room and one shoot, if I'm in a room with you two guys and I shoot Monroe and you see it, your your eyewitness uh, evidence is going to be very strong. If you're in a hall with 400 people scrambling, chairs falling, uh, everyone trying to get out of the line of the crossfire, you're not going to find you're not going to find a whole lot of reliable eyewitnesses. During the trial, uh, Mujahid Halim, the guy who was caught at the scene. in the middle of the trial, uh, saw that he was his case was going nowhere, uh, and he tried to um, he tried to give evidence that the other two guys were not part of the plot, but he would refuse to say uh, who ordered it. Um, who, who was involved in the uh, in the assassination? Mujahid was a uh, was an impressionable kid. He had had some police troubles before he joined the Nation of Islam. He got in trouble once after he joined. Uh, he was not a very strong witness for. Uh, on on the, on the potential innocence of his two co-defendants, the assumption the assumption the prosecution was promoting was that all three were equally guilty. Mm-hmm. Um, the two innocent guys got uh, Mujahid in a in a room outside the courtroom and uh, and uh, begged him to say who actually was behind the plot uh, at that point in his life he wasn't ready to do that he was still a loyal follower of Elijah Muhammad and he also knew what happened to followers who might involve Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam in this heinous act uh, he, would have been, he, he would have been a dead man Mm-hmm. Um, so two, three, four, five years pass and several things happen one, Elijah Muhammad died two, 
all three of the defendants converted to traditional Sunni Islam. Three Mujahid Alim Talmachair decides to swear to an an affidavit saying these other two guys are guilty. and uh, and uh, they get a lawyer. A fourth thing happened. They got a lawyer uh, who was uh, uh, Bill Kunstler, who was a little wacko, but uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, was was. Uh, uh, was good enough to allow me to go see these guys, all three of these guys in prison. Um, Maybe because he was a little wacko. Anyway, uh, I had that little editorial aside. Yeah. Les Les Payne told me that um, he thought that he, he, in in his reporting for his book, he he, he thought that a a Muslim had killed Malcolm also. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, that's pretty much accepted by all of scholars of the assassination. Isn't that correct, Peter? I don't think there's anybody out there arguing. We, we know now that there was a six-man squad, so-called special squad from the Newark Mosque and, the, and its Patterson satellite. Um, uh Two men were assigned to create a disturbance. Roll of film in a sock, they lit it on fire, threw it in an aisle. Uh, A guy jumps up and says, get your hand out of my pocket. And there's a scuffle and Malcolm is saying, cool it, cool it, cool it. That's on one side of the auditorium. On the other side, a guy with a shotgun. This is suspect number three. The two guys. We started with two guys creating the disturbance. Subject number three uh, uh, comes up to the edge of the stage and uh, unloads uh, with he has with a shotgun. Uh, I think two two blasts of double O buck. Uh, one pellet of double O buck is the equivalent of a thirty two caliber bullet. Um, Malcolm took, I think, eight the first shot. Um, there was a second shot that may have been irrelevant. Um, then Mujahid Halim and one other guy come with pistols. And by the time they start shooting, they're shooting into Malcolm's feet and legs because Malcolm was Malcolm was essentially was destroyed by the first uh, the first shotgun blast. Um, and the, okay, so I mentioned that there, this was a six man squad. Mm-hmm. Six man was a uh, a Fruit of Islam official from the Newark Mosque, a guy named Linward Cathcart. 
uh, he was there to observe and to communicate to Captain Joseph, the um, the leader of the FOI and the New York Mosque, that the job had been done. Mm. Um, in the in the chaos, everybody except Halim, who was wounded, escapes, and um, they all go back to Newark, where they are welcomed to the Newark Mosque and uh, and to their host for the day, Louis Farrakhan, uh, who happened to be in town from Boston. Coincidentally. Uh, pardon? Coincidentally. Coincidentally. Yeah, total coincidence. <laughs> Happened to be in town. Uh, I am. Um, and they had a uh, they had a dinner, uh, uh, presumably celebratory. I wasn't there. Mm. No, you were not there. Uh, neither was I, and neither was Monroe. Uh, one of the uh, uh, th- points, the observations made uh, in the documentary, or I can't remember where I saw this. Uh, Peter, I've read so much about uh, Malcolm X. I can't recall where I read this. But essentially, there was not a lot of interest uh, other than uh, people like yourself, uh, journalists like yourself, and um, a few others, uh, historians, etc. cetera. Uh, there's not a lot of widespread interest uh, in taking the deep dive into this. Uh, the part of you, the point of view of uh, many black people is like airing dirty laundry, uh, exposing the white people, um, the goings on. Uh, that would rather be kept private. Don't embarrass us uh, with this. Sort of like the attitude that so many Jews in this country had about Philip Roth novels uh, back in the 60s. Why are you embarrassing us with this stuff? Uh, And the attitude about white people is who cares about Malcolm X anyway? So, oh well. Uh, One last guy we have to worry about. Um, Do you think there's any truth to that? I I think in the immediate aftermath among uh, probably a large majority of white people, uh, there was there was some truth to that. But I think what what happened was um, I think white perception of Malcolm has always been a little primitive. Uh, he starts as a merchant of hate in the white mind. Uh, uh, when I wrote my when I wrote my book, I was thinking um, my audience is going to be a white. I'm a white guy with a Jewish surname. Uh, black people are not necessarily going to think this is the word. I thought I was writing to a white audience and I wanted to make clear that this guy was a very, very, very serious, intelligent, uh, important figure in the black struggle in America. Um, 
I'm not sure how many people I can convince. <laughs> but, but, That's a tough uh, struggle there, Peter. <laughs> but, then, but then again, thanks. A friend of mine tells me, a black friend of mine told me that uh, he's a historian, and he said that the African view of history is that it's a river and it, it flows. And... Um, And the river about white perceptions of Malcolm X flowed, uh, particularly with his um, pilgrimage to Mecca, in which he said some things about, uh, I'm a, in, in, in the Hajj, I met, I met Muslims of all colors, all together, all dressed the same way in, in white uh, garments. Um, no distinction among uh, colors, races, nationalities, none of that. Um, and that appears in his in the late in the later pages of his autobiography. Peter, I have and to so, ask you this. Uh, and listen, listening to you reminisce about this, you're one of the few people that I've talked to that uh, met. Malcolm X, uh, and had encounters with Malcolm. To me, Malcolm X Monroe, <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, is, is, is this legendary figure that's like greater than life, Malcolm X. And the, the, I'm having this vision in my mind of a 29-year-old Peter Goldman, this kid reporter in St. Louis, sitting across the table from the great Malcolm X, who would have been about 37 years old at that time. And it's not in 1962 or 63, whenever it was. So talk about that. Was it, were you intimidated? I mean, my, yeah. I've seen so many f images, uh, uh, footage of Malcolm X dueling uh, with reporters and getting and sh asking them about the questions they're asking and getting and sort of like challenging them instead of just accepting the premise of their question. Uh, was that what it was like with you sitting across that table for Malcolm X? Uh, you know, I'm a journalist. I don't. I, I told you my beefs with uh, 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 who's the bullet? Names sometimes escape me. The Pulitzer winner for the Mountain Biography. Uh, oh, uh, Manning Marable. Manning Marable. Uh, Marable interviewed me at great length um, and misquoted me at great length. And uh, one of the misquotes was about that first meeting with Malcolm X. Uh, I had written, a, I had written, a, I had seen Malcolm X at Harvard. I was at Harvard on a one-year fellowship, uh, a Neiman fellowship. Uh, um, he came to address the Harvard Law School Forum, and I went to see him, and was that was my first, uh, that was the first impact. I said, this guy's got something to say to white folks and black folks, obviously. Uh, I mean, his message was principally aimed at black folks uh, properly. Uh, 
but uh, uh, I was impressed with him. So I got, went back to my paper in St. Louis and persuaded the city editor to let me do a, uh, a mini-series on uh, the Nation of Islam locally. Uh, it turned out they had a quite weak mosque there. I, uh, uh, um, smallish following, uh, really semi-competent uh, minister. Uh, uh, but I wrote the series uh, and about how it hadn't been how how. Uh, this part of the the freedom struggle hadn't hadn't really put down serious roots in St. Louis, so I write that. And a couple of months after it was published, I get a phone call. I'm in my I'm at my rewrite desk. Uh, Mr. Goldman, <laughs> this is Minister Malcolm X. <laughs> I'm going to be in St. Louis in uh, on X date. Uh, I wondered if you'd like to sit down and talk. <laughs> and my reaction was, "Are you kidding?" <laughs> of course, I want to sit down and talk because I've been really, I've been really struck by the guy. I was really. Uh, well, to the extent a white person can be a, a convert. Um, and um, so uh, we arranged a meeting at a, at a small Muslim restaurant. We'd, we'd think of it more as, a, as an old-fashioned coffee shop for mica tables. And, and, uh, and uh, my wife, who was a, a journalist, wanted to come along. And uh, uh, so she did. And we, Marable portrayed me as highly nervous going into that meeting, which I found profoundly insulting. Monroe's <laughs> um, been a reporter. Uh, uh, we don't get highly nervous that our, we're doing our job. We right. toggle off any emotions. Uh, uh, and I actually was just looking forward to the conversation. So was my wife. Uh, and um, he came with the local minister who was who sat mute at the table. We were there for two hours. Mm. And... The conversation ranged from civil to uh, to, to something like friendly, and finally to kidding. Although there was. <laughs> One of the one of the um, part of the Muslim culture build black businesses small small black businesses um, in, in in inner city life a lot of the businesses were owned by Jews Italians uh, white white folks 
they wanted to build their own. And this restaurant, the, the Shabazz Frosty Cream, was such a business. On the way out, my wife uh, asked when we were when we had finished. She asked, "What if your uh, your program of building an independent black economy works, and all your followers go join the NAACP?" And f- for a moment, Malcolm wasn't sure she was kidding, <laughs> and then he. So, and among his other assets, the guy had the most brilliant smile you'll ever see on a human being. Uh, and he smiled and he said, we're not going to worry about that. <laughs> uh, and he was like that. He was... Uh, uh, I never... I, I had several more interviews. They always ran a couple of hours, which is rare. Monroe will remember that when you're interviewing a public figure, you're lucky to get 15 minutes, half an hour. Uh, uh, Malcolm was always, if he trusted you, he was good for two hours, minimum. Gave me his home phone number. Um, and um, none of that is to say he loved me because I don't know what he felt about me but I do I think the one thing I feel confident he felt me about was was trust as I mentioned earlier all right Uh, uh, I wish I could have said that I spent two hours conversing with Malcolm X Monroe I bet you feel the same way oh yeah Uh, I, I first saw him in, in high school. He's on the Cup Show. Yeah, yeah, and that's my that was my first introduction to him. It's, it's yeah, Cup, Cup was a Cup was a favorite of his. Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, no, but Cup back then he, Cup had an incredible show because he he have all these people on. Yeah, he said um, that you had never heard of. I mean, at least I had, but I was in high school, of course. So I had never heard much. <laughs> no, Cup. Oh, man, let's give a shout out to Cup. Irving Cups is in uh, former columnist, gossip columnist for the Chicago Sun-Times, had a show uh, that aired uh, The Friendly Art of Conversation and would air Sun, uh, Saturday nights, Monroe, and I'd be watching it. Uh, and I, Peter, it would be like, he would put, he would assemble a group of people that you would think have nothing in common. So our guest today will be Malcolm, Minister Malcolm X, uh, Don Rickles, and Steve Lawrence. <laughs> <laughs> My God, damn! And, and Rickles would be like cracking jokes, making fun of cups to pay or whatever. And Minister Malcolm X would be <laughs> chuckling. And then every now and again, his two sons. I mean, it was, I don't, never seen anything quite like it. Yeah, um, that was incredible. Yeah, yeah, I was a little kid just soaking it all up. <laughs> anyway, uh, and uh, I'm going to have to go back and look at uh, my uh, copy of Alex Haley's book. At one point in that book, I remember uh, Malcolm gives a shout out to white reporters uh, who have been he's trusted as essentially that allowed him as he put like the courtesy to say what he had. I want to see if you're mentioned here, Peter, you may be mentioned. I know cup was mentioned. And, um, I remember as a kid reading it, go, Oh my God, that's cup. Uh, and I think he threw a shout out to Mike Wallace 
uh, the legendary Mike Wallace, um, who interviewed him more than once uh, in New York City. So anyway, you're a lucky man, Peter Goldman, uh, in many respects. Uh, and I'll just say, I think you're a very lucky man that you got to meet and spend as much time as you did uh, conversing with the great Malcolm X. We've run out of time today. And Monroe, you and I didn't even do our, uh, our weekly uh, Rip Trump and MAGA. Uh, so before I let you go see if Peter Goldman has a few things to say about MAGA before we head out the door, any uh, thoughts you want to make Monroe before you head out the door? Uh, any MAGA news updates you want to give? Mike, Mike metals is, um, pulling a Barkley. He, he says his, his book is fake news. <laughs> the book that he wrote has fake news in it. You know, like Barkley said, he was yeah. misquoted in his autobiography. Yeah. How that happens, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Peter, who's, who's, who could explain that to us. Well, I'll tell you how it happened with Barkley. The man didn't read his uh, autobiography. Some writer cooked up an autobiography of Charles Barkley. Barkley got money off of it. It caused some trouble. Barkley goes, no, he got it wrong. Well, maybe you should have read it before you put it out. I love. To, I'm not going to say a bad word about. Well, that's Charles what Mark happened Mark. with Nettles. Uh, he 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 uh, attributed things that Trump upset Trump, and so then Trump called it fake news, and then Nettles says, "Yeah, it's fake Mark news." Meadows. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What a coward! These guys are yeah. so afraid of Trump. I mean, Mark Meadows, man, come on! You probably got a healthy little payout for this quote-unquote literary work that you just came up with. You know what I'm saying? And he's backing off because a little pressure from Trump. I see it happen all the time, Monroe. That's how much control Donald Trump has over anybody who's anyway connected to the Republican Party. Yeah, it is. Um, there's there's a piece in The Atlantic, uh, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. It's... Um, January the, the the headline on the story is January sixth was practice. Yeah, yeah. I just I just read that yesterday. It's a very very scary piece. Right. And I was already scared about uh, uh, about the American future. Uh, I, I think there's you know prediction is always dangerous, but there, there does seem to be a strong possibility that we're headed for something that looks more like authoritarianism than democracy. And, uh, yeah. uh, and that's Trump. That's Trump's legacy. That is Trump's and legacy. And he may be our next president. Yes. So on that cheery note, uh, we're going to have to close the show for the day. <laughs> Don't worry, folks. It's at least two years before we have to go through another Trump election. So we could... Uh, we could prove uh, Peter wrong and Monroe wrong and me wrong and our fears uh, by, first of all, holding high. This is Ben speaking, <laughs> not Peter uh, or Monroe, but uh, keeping the Republicans from taking control. I'm, I'm very worried about Congress, Monroe and Peter, and this is uh, too late to delve into this conversation. The gerrymandering really does look as though, Monroe, it's given the Republicans a huge advantage in taking back Congress. Uh, in November, I've been following the gerrymandering that's been going on throughout the country, particularly in the state of Texas. We'll uh, probably bring Jason Lee back, Monroe, to talk about that. But um, it's a, there's a coming battle, Peter. You're absolutely correct. Uh, and uh, I think it's, it, it serves us all well to be vigilant about it, and we'll leave it at that. 
Uh, Peter Goldman, thank you so much uh, for taking time uh, to come talk to us uh, about your great work. And um, folks, if you want to uh, read his book, you can still get it. It's still for sale. Uh, the Death and Life of Malcolm X and his other books, books about Vietnam, books about presidential elections and his novels as well. And, and brothers. Let's not forget brothers. And brothers. Definitely yeah. brothers. <laughs> let's not forget brothers. I have a copy of that on my shelf. Uh, and uh, so let's not forget brother. Who is the basketball player? Um, in brothers. Oh my goodness. I just, he went deep to, um, uh, Billy, Billy Harris, Billy Harris, <laughs> Billy, the kid Harris, man, yeah. folks, if you're a Chicago basketball fan, you got to read brothers just to <laughs> Billy, the kid Harris from DuSable high school. One of the greatest playground legends to come out of the city and should have been on my beloved Chicago bulls, but they had that quote of Monroe and they were not going to put, right. uh, a quote unquote troublemaker like Billy, the kid Harris, on my beloved yeah. Chicago Bulls. So uh, that's a great book, brothers. Uh, for no other reason, you get to uh, read about Billy the Kid Harris. Peter Goldman, thank you very much. Monroe Anderson, thank you very much. And, of course, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, without whom this show is possible. And as Peter Goldman and Monroe will tell you, back home in Alton, they call himself, they call him Dr. D. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. <laughs> right. Be a good neighbor. Otherwise, I'm going to be up your butt and... I don't want an answer. <laughs>